There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. It's Helen here, the voice of Azu, Enola, and Laverne. Today... I'm here to tell you about Woe Begone, a podcast launched on the RQ Network. Woe Begone is a weekly horror sci-fi audio drama series about the nature of power and the implications of linear time. Woe Begone follows Mike Walters, who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Woe Begone, spelled woe period begone, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. Have fun and see you later. Hello everybody, welcome to the second in the uh, post-Magnus Q&As. I'm Alexander J. Newell, director and uh, contributor, and with me I have... It's me, Johnny. Hello. I've had some caffeine, feeling punchy. Very different tone, very different tone from last one. Right, so for this one, uh, we have spared Elizabeth the uh, 50-hour process that these normally take, but we're going to be doing a lot more, I think a lot more story-focused stuff, things like that, although I think we have a couple of orders of business off the top of this Q&A, which will make life a little bit easier, I think. Yes, so first up, a lot of the questions here are for what might be termed extra-canonical information. Like, really specific, some of it as well. Yeah, and the obvious preface is that a lot of those, like, we're probably not going to answer because we don't have good answers for them, because by its nature, Magnus is a expansive world that's intended to have a lot of dangling threads, a lot of, like, scope for people to draw their own conclusions, their own interpretations. So... A lot of these we're going to be like, ah, we don't really have an answer for that. And for some of them, 
we do have an answer, but it, it's it's a joke. It's a funny answer. <laughs> like nothing we say here regarding story stuff has any actual effect on the text. The text now exists. It's there. It's it's finished. It's complete. It's done. You know, and if we say something that goes against your interpretation of the text, we're wrong. Yeah, like, we, we can't change the thing that exists. That's not how this works. So, yeah. a second point of order on this one is there's quite a lot of questions of, please lay out, Johnny, every aspect of your career for the next 10 years that I might follow it and set calendar alerts in my diary. By the same token, there's quite a lot of, like, hey... Who are Rusty Quill currently in negotiations for? And it's not a thing we can do, so there might be a few questions that are perfectly reasonable, and the answer will be sit tight, because I can't answer that question. So, with that little bit of order of business off the top, we can now get stuck in. So, I haven't read most of these. These have been prepped prior, so that I can give a fresh take. But with that in mind, I will start with this question from Amsel. Oh, and the last order of business, as always, is you have no idea how many questions there were. You so have many. no, you have no concept so of many. how many questions there are. As a result, no, we're not getting through them. We're not getting through most. We'll get through some. On to our first question, then. This is from Amsel. In the post-change world, would you rather rule over a domain or be trapped in one? Hmm... I mean, I mean, from a moral point of view, be trapped in one, but from a personal selfish point of view, rule over one. Like, I mean, it's... I mean, you're going to suffer either way, but there's one bonus with ruling over that you get, which is at least you can still get the satisfaction of a job well done. <laughs> you're suffering either way, at least this way, you mm, know. I don't know, though, because, like... It's efficient, and it, it, it works. Actually, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to game it and use my knowledge as the author that at some point it ends and say I'm going to be victim in this scenario because then at the end I'm not going to get just torn apart by angry mobs. Oh, well, if we're, if we're going to go meta, yeah, that there is an objectively correct answer, regardless of morality, which is yes. One of them, you don't immediately get chased down after the fact. <laughs> okay, okay. On to our next question then, which is from basically everyone. What fear domain do you think you would be trapped in? Oh, this is such an obvious question. And I've given it exactly zero thought. See, I've given it some thought, and the issue is I find myself a little bit split. I think I would end up in two very specific ones, which is either a very generic, vast one, because I do get certain thalassophobic tendencies in open water and things like that. I'm a very strong swimmer. I, I can do all that kind of thing, but it still freaks me out. But you're also deeply basic. Yeah, exactly. The other option, which is way more specific, is it depends how, like, cerebral a hell I get given, because I'm not claustrophobic at all, but certainly the buried where I wake up and there is 2,000 things to do, all of which are dense paperwork, and if I don't do them, people I know are going to suffer, and if I stop, it's not going to get done, and that forever, but that's more of a... That's less of a fear response than a a pure misery. So I think mine's mm. between those two, probably. I mean, to a certain degree, I think Oliver Banks' domain kind of is, of all the ones I wrote, is probably the closest to somewhere I might actually be, just because, like, I am a bit of a hypochondriac like that, you know? 
a lot of those sort of things I'm like oh that's a slight pain in my arm ah time for the heart attack goodbye everyone so that there is uh, an element of that one or some just really horrible corruption domain because I really hate like mold and rot and all that sort of stuff oh, like it's, no. it's just you, it's just nothing horrible. wrong with a good mold you can do a lot with a good mold also the, the corruption is a power that you can kick so i'm okay i'm okay with the corruption don't bother me what do you mean it's a power you can kick oh no creepy mushroom kick it yeah, no, what you can't kick like if the mold is no, buried no, into your mold, flesh kick it if you are rotting you can't just kick your own rot out yeah you can kick it okay the corruption is a power that can be kicked i have i have no time mm. for it hmm Disagree. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this next question is from basically everyone. It does lure a little bit in towards that, like, you know, text is the text argument, but, you know, I was ready for this to be asked, which is fair enough. Knowing that the end of the show was intended to be ambiguous, do either of us have any canon ideas in our head about what really happened to John and Martin? Have we decided that no one, including us, should know? Not really. I mean, I... I I don't like there were various story discussions where they just died or where they like something specific and like detailed happened to them like you know that they were plucked from the world everything is yeah but as soon as we landed on that actually no it is this sort of ambiguous just end this 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 kind of open thing it felt certainly to me it felt so right that like my mind was just like, yep, brilliant, brilliant, that's that. That's it. I don't know, periodically I've been like, oh yeah, no, they probably died, or no, you know what, I think they ended up somewhere else, or you know what, I think some other thing happened to them that is weird and metaphysical, but I don't actually have a defined interpretation for myself. Yeah, I, I'm i kind of the same, That I don't, I don't think there's actually, like, I mean, they've said they know that it's intended to be deliberate, but uh, to go further, I think it it's deliberately like there is no canonical answer here. But I think it's also worth separating out that question from, of course, I see potentials there. This isn't this isn't teasing anything to be clear or anything like that. All I'm getting at is, with an ending like that, I I can see multiple avenues that you could extrapolate from there as a point. But just because it has a lot of potential avenues for exploration. Like people can go off and they can explore those as as they see fit in in you know fan works and head canons, but ultimately the the canonical answer is there's not an answer. Like that's not an accident. Also, for me, like I love a tragedy, and for me, a tragedy always builds up to that like single like point of catharsis. That and in this case, like Martin stabbing John, and there's that massive climax, and then after that. I, I don't really have a, a strong... I, I don't care as much, I guess. You know, I'm like, no, that's what happens after that point. It's not this story. It's not this story. Mm. Next question again from basically everyone. Uh, would either of you be willing to explain your thoughts on the ending, which I think we've already sort of been doing a little bit. I think it's worth mentioning as well that I think it needed to be both, to be clear. We did examine, like, is it this or is it that? Yeah. I actually don't think it functions as an ending if it's categorically one or the other at the at the point that you reach it has to be both yeah no i i think it's an interesting one because the ending has been both a fixed point and incredibly mutable 
throughout a lot of the series. Like, it was quite early in season one, when we were discussing the overall shape of the show, it came down to this thing of like, oh no, I want to end the world, we want to have this like weird Mageddon. And it's like, well, this is a kind of a, a cosmic horror tragedy, so you've got the problems that like, well, you can't have a cosmic horror if the good guys canonically win, but also if you're going to be following characters for 200 episodes... You can't just casually chuck them under the bus. Yeah, you can't just have it like, you know, with a horror movie, like two hours, oh no, that's a really bleak ending for these characters that we've spent two hours with. Fine. But you can't have just like a completely bleak ending for characters you have spent, what, 80 hours with. And then if you look at real-time years, <laughs> you know, half a decade you've been chilling yeah, out with or whatever. Exactly. So the, the, the sort of, the fix there is like, oh, okay, so by the end... They're not necessarily heroes. Like they're not necessarily like the good guys in that sort of sense. They are changed and fl- I mean they're always very flawed characters because we like to write flawed characters, but they have been changed and kind of warped by this world and what they've had to do to survive and and push through. And so there was the the idea of John making that decision to take over from Elias uh, from Jonah at the end was always there and then him sort of essentially dying to release the fears into the multiverse was always core to what that ending was but the exact mechanics of that changed quite a lot in our first iteration actually the 197 reveal of the web spreading out was actually going to be an episode 200 revelation Mm, it was like the final twist but as we got closer it became more and more apparent that a as a final twist, it like it it worked a lot better if it was revealed in establishing the stakes because so much of this of the series was about choice. It felt cheap to have the archivist like tricked into doing it or like yep. just revealed that it had all been a manipulation that it had to have. Like and there could be web manipulation stuff in that final choice, but it still had to be an actual decision that they understood the stakes of. To give a really, really hot take, I firmly believe that every single story, the correct ending for a story, is a high-stakes personal choice. You have then, like, you know, you wrap up after that fact, but I can't think of any story that that is not objectively just the right answer for. I mean, it's it's agency is yeah. is at the core of it. So, yeah, the, the ending's are an interesting one because, like, that image of like john taking over at the heart of the institute this was i think before i think when we first came up with that it was before we'd settled on the panopticon largely because i hadn't done the historical research to discover about millbank prison that's so long ago yeah good point. oh yeah the idea of the archivist taking over was there right from the start and then a lot of stuff sort of changed and moved around and i'm i'm really i'm really happy actually with with where we ended up i think i think we landed in a pretty good place with it. I'd certainly say that the archivist ended up more um more sympathetic towards the end. Yeah. I think originally we were talking about a much more gradual descent into an inevitable decision. And actually what it ended up being is a lot more like someone is struggling to make it, struggling to make it along, struggling to make it along, and is driven to the point where they believe this is the right call, but that's not quite the same. So I think that weirdly enough, even at the end, there's an element of sympathy for the archivist 
that was not oh absolutely the original like, conception i don't think we were talking initially about it being like kind of a five series slow descent mm. into being the person that would make that decision and the thing that actually changed about that was the relationship with martin yeah which was something that we'd like kind of discussed and maybe had in our mind during some of the early seasons but at the time i don't think we realized how much of an emotional through line and emotional core of the show it was going to be i think the the ending episode itself as well it was a weird one to write because like it felt quite quick in a lot of ways yeah but every time i tried to extend any of the scenes the momentum of it just disappeared you know see that was the thing is like from my perspective structurally speaking there's sort of a scene missing yeah which is everyone else trying to blow up the base like, oh, no, we're struggling. Oh, no, ah, ah, from your TV beats. It needs the, oh, we're going to do it, we're going to do it. Oh, no, it's going wrong. And then we cut yeah, to... Yeah, no, I, I actually wrote a couple of drafts of a scene like that, but it didn't work because, like, there was nothing in that scene that you didn't get from, like, the epilogue. Yeah. And... Like, there was no revelation for that scene. It wasn't actually as tense or that, and more importantly, it took this episode that was, like, essentially a single shot... Yeah. Like, the final episode is one long scene. And breaking it up to put in, like, that scene underneath the Institute, it didn't add anything, and it really, like, killed the pace. And I kept trying to I kept trying to extend the conversation between John and Martin, and it just never landed. Like, it just felt... I get it. ...deflating. Yeah, it's a I weird one. I think if I'd have te- teleported back in time and told myself that we weren't going to be doing that scene, I, like, younger me would tell me, well, you're doing it wrong. That's That's incorrect. Yeah. And it just, I don't think it would have ever worked like that, ever. But I'm shocked, because that's structurally a bit off. Yeah, it like, it, it felt weird, and I think, I think in some ways it does feel, like, a little bit abrupt in terms of, in terms of that last episode, but I'm happy with it. Mm. Speaking of the intensity of the relationships there, from many people, given mm-hmm. your feelings about kissing noises, what made you change your mind about including one in the finale? That's an easy question. It's a finale, mate. Yeah, you get one. You don't get to have one every episode, which people would have pushed for. And also, there's a difference between two characters in an empty void having a snog and what you got. Yeah, like... You get one. You get one. Also, fundamentally, it was one of those things where I wrote it in and I was like, oh, Alex has said no kissing, might get pushed back on this. Alex was like, no, this is the right place for it. Yeah. It's fine. It's like a good swear. If you'd never sworn through the entire series, be a good point for a swear. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's also, it's one of those things where I think when people listen to, like, the old Q&As, I think they often take what we say as in context of, like, the whole thing, like, all five seasons, as opposed to what our thoughts and feelings were at, at that, that point. Time, yeah. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that, like, I say in earlier Q&As that later... Nah, it's not it's not the case. And it's like, broadly speaking, if I say something in an earlier q and I'll try to abide by it. But at the same time, the world and me have changed since that Q&A. And, you know, that's often reflected in the writing. I'd say I stand by everything before where it's like you can't have too much in a show because it's, it's distracting. But that's not what's on the cards there. It's fine. It's just you can't do it all the time. If I gave any ground, we'd have ended up with non-stop snogging. So uh, it had to be this way, I am afraid. Yep. Snogs galore. <laughs> T- title of the Magnus Archives 2. 
<laughs> Semicolon snogs galore. Okay, at Asher Ketchum asks, So I know it might be one of those up-to-listener-to-interpret things, but does the rest of the world remember their time in the Nightmarescape world? Short answer is yes. Yeah, so that's interesting. I, th- I think we're pretty clear at, like... Simon Fairchild's fate is definitely intended to imply that. Yes. Uh, The exact degree of that is not something that we've dived into, largely because it's one of those things that it's too interesting a question to go too far into because I'd end up... Building a new version of the Magnus world? Yeah, you can't just dive into that question a little bit if you go too deep you're like oh no this is this is fascinating like what does this world actually look like so whether it's like they have vague memories but it's like it was a nightmare or whether they have like deep and intricate exact memories of everything that happened what the actual time frame is like has the world like the physical world returned exactly as it was or is there a lot of reason you couldn't have stuff like collective memory effects the list goes on so those sorts of details, I have no particular specific thoughts on. But broadly speaking, yes, the world remembers and is aware of what has happened. That was certainly the intent behind the Fairchild nod yeah. at the end. And like a lot of that is just because the st- I, f- I feel like the standard move would be to have everyone forget to have like yeah, the world boo, continue never boo. knowing what had happened but it's so much more interesting to me to be like no what's what, what is what is a world that has suffered through six months of like it's, incredible supernatural trauma like what is that world and it's not often that you get a sort of post post apocalypse or like a a, 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 a genesis mm. story whatever you want to call it where everything's still there you know it isn't like oh and now we live in the ruins of the old world the old world's basically fine. It's just that we all remember it not being. That's a different yeah. it's, a, it's just consideration. Yeah, it's, it's one of those ones where, like, weirdly, I think post-Magnus Archives is a much more compelling world than the Magnus Archives. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, I'm really glad this question's got asked by apparently loads of people, which is really pleasing me. Hey, Johnny. What's up? Was the original plan to actually have Annabelle do the whole web Martin and filling Martin with spies and stuff as described in 196? So, yeah, like I said earlier, <laughs> we went through a huge number of variants of the ending and different sort of states of play. Years ago, mind. And, uh, yeah, one of them uh, was, like, having Martin basically filled with spiders and turned into a spider avatar. And, like, it would be basically I, John, and Spider Martin, like, facing off in the final episode. And that would be, like, the tragic confrontation well the, there was a there was a version where and again this is this was about a long long time ago there was a version we were looking at where maybe the archivist betrayal was a little bit more focused around like believing martin had done something awful that he had yeah, like, like that after martin having stood by him by the whole time and things like that but essentially it's, it's fa- it was fascinating looking at the the fandom and like the web martin believers uh, because what they were doing was correctly picking up on hints dropped in the early seasons that were later, like, not exactly abandoned, but it was much more like, well, no, he does have, like, aspects of the web to him, but he mm. is moreover the lonely. And that came about very, very organically, really, because, because throughout season yeah. three and going into season four, 
uh, we had this conversation and we were like no actually he's like it ca- it can't be it cannot be it must be the yeah. other way around yeah and a lot of it also is one of the interesting things about writing something live effectively is that where you do and don't have to listen to how something is being received because it became very apparent that Martin as Webb if we went that direction wouldn't land like we wanted it to you know it would give the wrong message we could say as much as we wanted well actually Martin is quite like kind of petty a bit manipulative but the the fact is that his character is not broadly speaking received in that way if we went a Webb Martin route it would not come across as a natural culmination of his character. It would come across as like, oh no, he's been lying the whole time, or he's actually yeah. evil. And once we realised that that was what the takeaway would be if we went that route, it became apparent that it's like we had to sort of reevaluate and be like, well, okay, so what actually is like, who actually is Martin within this series at this point? And we took a long look, and we were like, actually, he's he's incredibly lonely like this is this is where so much of it is coming from is a place of is a place of isolation and loneliness rather than like manipulation so yeah it's it's an interesting one so yeah it was uh, i really enjoyed writing it because it was able to like look at one of the like dozens of of ending drafts and be like actually you know what that one was quite fun what made me laugh so much was i didn't know you'd done that before i saw that script yeah so I read that script and went, you, you, as you just wrote out what it could have been, like one of the potential avenues we explored just explicitly. It works and it's great, but I was absolutely blindsided. And I quite enjoy it. Like, it's one of those things that, like, it gives me a certain metatextual joy, you know? Yeah, right. Like the fact that my mum and dad play Gertrude and Leitner which has a metatextual, like, just a fun metatextual element given those characters' relationship to the archivist. In a same, in the similar way, Annabelle having, like, an abandoned plan that was one of the old scripting plans, it, 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 it delighted me. It feels right, yeah. That actually leads on to a, a follow-on that I'm going to slightly rephrase because we've covered quite a lot of it, but it's from, again, basically everyone. You said your original concept for the finale changed. Could you talk about original versus finished? But the thing that the, the, the key takeaway here is you once spoke of a chocolate tort of tragedy versus a grim souffle. What's the difference between these two? The chocolate tort of tragedy specifically was an idea I had that was completely abandoned about the archivist. This was in a version where it seemed like Martin had died a few episodes previous and was going to come back as, uh, I think this was one of the Spider-Avatar versions? I forget. I think it was one of the... It was late Spider-Avatar version because it was a way we were exploring to see if we could cheat the archivist when we realised it couldn't be a gradual descent. It needed to be a a bit more of a switch. It was a a version where the archivist was very much, like, alone. Like, he had taken on the power... Like, he had killed... Jonah Elias at the end of I think penultimate episode and so the the final episode is is like it, it is the sort of the lonely the lonely king before Martin comes up and I had an idea of like 
him having like a knowledge power which would allow him basically it's basically ghosts it's basically ghosts of all the other characters from the throughout the seasons like kind of berating him because he now has the knowledge powers to know what they would say were they able to see him now it was conceptually it was conceptually quite nice i don't think it would have actually worked i think it would have come across as cheesy in the end yeah i agree i thought i i thought like because we we pulled away from it because we were like it's conceptually nice, but it feels like it's a bit, it, like ghosts yelling at you. It feels a bit TV. It feels a bit yeah. trite. To be to be fair, actually, I think we actually pulled away from it near the end of season three when we kind of did that already with Gertrude and Leitner. Yeah, yeah, we yeah we just like took that idea, we and, stole it, and used it yeah. elsewhere. So there was, although I, I don't know if that actually matches up time wise with the chocolate torture tragic tweet, but I forget. But yeah, that was the idea of like the layers of like, oh, he's alone, but he's still being berated by like his his friends, and he's lost them. And then Martin, well, we comes definitely co opted a chunk of it for start of season five as well. Don't forget. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With the we we realised that we could cheat, have all of the nice fluffy stuff at the start, and then use it as a massive guilt stick to hit the archivist with extra hard to yeah. launch us into the start of the season. So we definitely co opted chunks of it. But anyway, that was that was specifically what I was talking about when I was. Re- referring to layers it was again one of the variant endings and and it's it's like i say they all have the same core to them but yeah the exact manifestation of them changed and you know altered and all this sort of stuff i suppose the real follow-on question though there johnny is that if it's a grim souffle is it a souffle that came out and held up or is it one that kind of just exploded exploded, alex the souffle exploded and covered you with Gristle. <laughs> Gristle! <laughs> Excellent. Grisly yep. souffle, God. You're welcome, right, everyone. Fine. On to the next question, then. So this next question catches me a little bit by surprise from apparently a bunch of people. In the season four mm-hmm. Q&A, Johnny said the relationship between John and Martin would not be explicit. Oh, right. But that's not the case in season five. What did you change your mind about to make that become a relationship. Okay, so I've I've seen this about a bit. I I think I probably communicated myself quite poorly in the season four Q and A. Okay, because what I said was that if you interpreted Martin and John's dynamic at the end of season four as platonic, that that was like that was valid. That was fine. Which oh, like it's a it's a it's a valid reading. It's a hypothetically coherent reading. And the thing is, this is not a canonical or intentional like this is me stating almost a a philosophical position because my my attitude is that there is the text i've made the text but then the text is out there it is it is uh, dead it is it is extant then there is the reader or the listener the audience and the story is kind of what happens when the two meet Mm. and if a listener's interaction with the text leads them to a specific reading I do not have the power or the authority or the right to say, no, that's wrong. You know, it, it's it's the sort of death of the author thing. And it's not exactly that I'm pushing off my own responsibility. In fact, in many ways, I'm saying that like, well, no, if if it is possible for this to be a common reading and I didn't want that to be a common reading, I've I've ma- I've I've failed. I've made a mistake. I've clearly put something in the text that I didn't really want to be there or i haven't put something that i did want to be there but that's that's on me i can't then go turn around and say these people are wrong and so like if there were that many and there were quite a lot of people who did read the season four finale as like 
a platonic thing. Like, I don't have the right to say, no, you, you're wrong. Like, I can say, well, no, I, I intended it to be romantic, but I can't actually say you have to read it that way. And a lot of people have said, oh, well, like, clearly massively was like, no, screw all of you in season five. It's like, no, that's that's how season five was always going to be. You know, like, it potentially is a valid reading as of the end of season four. If you can have that reading sustained through season five, I mean, good luck to you, but it was always going to be, it was always going to be a, a pretty explicitly romantic relationship throughout season five. Yeah, it's interesting. I, th- I think the question kind of implies a, p- a pivot that doesn't exist. Yeah. I think I didn't quite expect how prominent the relationship was going to be in a lot of season five, largely because, I mean, largely because there wasn't a pandemic at that point, uh, which meant that... There was a lot of other voices yeah, in Yeah, like, room. initially, as we've mentioned before, season five was going to have a lot more, like, enduring ensemble elements. It was still going to be that central odyssey, but as soon as production was like, well, no, like, 70-80% of these scenes are going to have to be specifically Johnny and Alex, John and Martin. It was like, well, this relationship, which was always going to be the emotional through line, the emotional core of this season, now has to be kind of the actual forefront of it as well. Next one's a much broader question, again, from a bunch of people, and again, makes sense. Do you have an overall favourite episode from the series? Not really. Changes. I have some favourites, but I've never had a favourite. I've never said before, I've always had a soft spot for Lost John's Cave uh. because because it's the first time that scope creep happened in the entire series where there was a there was a version of the episode and then I went, you know what, Johnny? Nod to some original footage that you found. And you're like, but you've explicitly said that that can't happen because it'll be too difficult. And I was like, yeah, but it'll be yeah, good. Oh. I'll figure it out. It'll be fine. It is the first case where I went, you know, screw common sense. I'll figure it out. It's kind of the only one as well that wasn't that wasn't an effect we used again. No, 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 no. no. And it was just it was just a screw it. Let's have a little bit. Just of scope one of those group. season one things where we're still like finding our feet, like experimenting with the form, yeah, and not in a like, well, this is a fundamental transformation that we're going to do later, or this is a big finale, and so we're going to massively switch everything up. Just being like, you know what? Let's try this. See how it works. Yeah, I've already had stuff about that. Always liked Piper just because of the writing. I mean, I, I, I always like like the Piper was one that's like been in my head for like years and years before Magnus. Piper is the point. I thought we had something special, um, mm. and I don't mean that in a cruel way. It's just that Piper was the time I heard it and went, "Oh, it is quite good, isn't it?" Because I put I put extra to work into the at the time I was still learning all of the like music and stuff just to help it pop. Because yeah. I really liked that. Then moving through, it's the ones. Honestly, a lot of them are the ones you'd expect. Mister Spider, I quite liked the like plague village season five i think i have a soft i think most of my favorites are driven more though by the monologues than by the scenic stuff which might surprise people i really really liked the execution of the monologue of 200 i think elizabeth sort of primordial soup through Mm. to like through all of the different soundscapes i really really liked that the i think the monologue on its own is like it does its job, but it needed that extra stuff on top in a way that some of the others, or some of the other monologues, just stand on their own. You could just read it as a text, and it just goes off in your head anyway. Whereas two hundred, I think, is one of the best ones where those two elements mesh. I'm really happy with two hundred. Sort of tag on to that with the, what were your favourite parts about writing or performing in the show? Oh, I liked to do a scream. 
I hate doing screams. I hate, hate. The only thing, if Alex had his way, we would just do a pinter play of Magnus where no one does anything and everyone just talks at one another. I hate combat and screaming. God. Also, you know what? I really liked recording with like some of my friends, you know? <laughs> Breacon and Hope. That's always been fun to perform with because it never has been anything other than chaos. <laughs> because you, Johnny specifically, the second that what? you are paired Me? with that bunch, it is just a concoction for pure nonsense. ludicrous bombastic this is, this is nonsense. Slander. And when, the content was always good at the other end, but it was the fact that it'd be two hours of you're right, Breakin, I'm all right. Hope you like polos. I bloody love polos. And then you'd get in there as them as well. So I've got all of you with bad cockney accents <laughs> going, I think about a polo is I really like the holes in the middle. Ah, oh, you see, interestingly, because I disagree, because I think that that means there's not enough polo. So yeah, I think that's probably my favourite bit in retrospect at the time. Drove me a little bit up the wall. <laughs> but looking back, those are certainly some of my fondest memories. I also really enjoyed writing comedy into Magnus. Yeah. Like, I loved it whenever anyone was, like, saying, like, oh, Magnus is a comedy, or, like, oh, this is this is funny in a way that was, like, and I don't think they realise, because it's, it's like, like yeah, mm. we... I loved the ghost line in season one. That was probably oh, yeah. the best instance of that, because it was done a little bit on the fly, because we were we were kind of editing in real time a little bit to really get it to pop, and I that was a joy. That was really fun to just triple down on. <laughs> Just the, the stupidest take possible. This next one I'm not surprised is being asked. This one's from Ace. I've seen a lot of people pointing out parallels between the Magnus Archives and Lord of the Rings. Were any of those parallels intentional, Johnny? Uh, don't think so. I mean, like, I like Lord of the Rings. Oh, they were from me. Oh, oh were they? Yeah, season five is just it's just the Lord of the Rings all over. I'll, I'll be honest, uh, as, a, as a pretentious knob... I was thinking of season five a lot more uh, as like the classical Odyssey. Well, in fairness, structurally, we did actually examine a few things because we were like, "Is because I remember having an actual sit down discussion going, is this more like an Odyssey? Is this more like an Inferno? You know, what's what's the kind of story model for I this? I vaguely have a memory of this and you were like, is this like an Odyssey? And I was like, yes. And then you were like, is this like an Inferno? And I was like, yes. And you're like, is this like Lord of the Rings? And I was like, yes. It, yeah, it wasn't uh, a helpful discussion, to be clear, because I was asking from a structural standpoint, and you went, it's all of them, but the best bits. Personally, genuinely, at my end, I just latched Lord of the Rings style. And it's not literally meant to be a rip-off. It's just there were so many parallels going in, the whole mm. two characters, the second that we knew that Helen was going to be popping around as a unhelpful third wheel to just sow a little bit of chaos, but also be vaguely kind of sympathetic, then not. Like, a lot of parallels happened on their own but I did see them. I think the archivist is a much more active figure than Frodo. I 100% agree on that. Because certainly, I mean, I think I think it's slightly different in the books, but certainly in, in the films, which is what I've engaged with most recently. I, I did read the books about a long time ago now. Like, Frodo's very, like, active and full of agency in the first in the first one, but in the second and third, he's much more this sort of slow missile heading towards Mount Doom while Sam is there, like, looking after him and guiding him and, like, trying Missile to talk him through. Yeah. Uh, whereas in season five, John is much more, like, he's much more active, you know? I think part of it as well is, for Lord of the Rings, 
uh, Frodo's denied any kind of meaningful agency at the most important point. The whole point is like, bear with me, because the like certainly the way it's written and so on is that this is entire thing about something eating away at his self-agency to the point at the end that is not him choosing anything that is him being conquered by the ring so as a result that's not that's not actually a choice it's not it might feel a little bit like a choice but it's not and that is very it's a defeat rather than a choice. exactly and it's still potent still hurts to watch and to read but it's not a choice and that is very different and once you start factoring in the other stuff of like you know tolkien's meant to be it's kind of dealing with these these like post-war considerations and like what it feels like to be swept up in events and so on. I think that aesthetically and certain structural elements are yeah very very reminiscent and that's not something that I was trying to fight against when like editing and helping you out. But I think they are quite different beasts on the actual like bones. I don't think that they are particularly compatible. They're dealing with very different themes. Yeah, Lord of the Rings to me is very much about how you stand against. An, like an overwhelming tide of darkness, essentially. Hmm. Whereas Magnus Archives is much more about, well, what are your moral responsibilities when... When you're in control of an unstoppable tide of darkness. You find <laughs> that you are part of this darkness, and it's not a tide of darkness sweeping over the world. It is a calcified darkness that is part of the world. One that we sort of touched on a little bit, so we might have to skim past quite quickly, which is, which characters or events from earlier seasons do you wish you could have brought back for later episodes or explored their stories further? Oh, it's a tricky one. There's, I think, the two that always linger in my mind as not exactly regrets, but things if I was reworking Magnus from the start, like I might have gone a different way with Adelard Decker and Agnes Montague. Yeah, I agree on both. Adelard Decker, I think I only realised how fascinating a character he was basically when we were retrospectively killing him off. Like, we... like He's uniquely grounded. He's uniquely grounded. He is easily the closest thing that the world has to an actual hero yeah as in someone who is legitimately just trying to do the right thing not from like some weird utilitarian like i must save the world or narcissistic angle yeah but from this point of view of like what you generally would consider like a hero to do and i think that is something that i would have been very interested to dive more into if I'd clocked that angle earlier in his writing. It'd have been fascinating to see what, what the archivist and Martin became meeting a Decker who had sort of survived yeah. and was still fighting the good fight. That would have been an interesting conversation. Yeah. And like I regret like I think I legitimately do regret that we didn't fight harder to get him voiced. Because like it was one of those things where it, it turned out it probably wasn't going to be possible. So, like, we shifted our focus elsewhere, and I'm like, I think there's other stuff that would have been worth sacrificing to get, like, a properly voiced Decker. I think you'd have ended up losing Salesa to gain Decker <sighs> yeah. or something similar, and then the trade-off starts yeah. to be a real problem. And Agnes is... Agnes is a tricky one, because I was fascinated with this idea of this chosen one messianic figure that you never hear from directly, that is entirely created through the effects and through the perceptions of others everyone who surrounds her you get all these sort of kind of conflicting ideas like from 
Jude or the coffee shop guy or Gertrude or Arthur Nolan and all these like all these figures to whom she was so important and you never get an actual definite like this is who she was and that was an idea that that fascinated me this this figure that's only built up through the perceptions of others I think what I underestimated and like and I kind of stand by that conceptually i think i underestimated how much not actually hearing from her would leave that feeling a little bit incomplete a bit unsatisfying sidelined or something like and i think that's why like a lot of fans right to the end were kind of expecting agnes to to come back in a more significant way because that storyline didn't necessarily have that emotional yeah closure yeah so I don't know what else I would do with Agnes were I to, to revisit it, but while I stand by what we were doing with Agnes, I think there is more that we could have gone into. I think into. I have one minor regret on the event side, which is there's a trope that I love, which we never did in Magnus, I don't think, which is formally re-examining something that we have already seen and already dealt with from the perspective of a different person, thereby recontextualizing that entire event. Oh yeah, we never did that, did we? No, we didn't. I don't think we did. Because it's like, this wouldn't be the best case of it, but like the unknowing from the perspective of someone else where it turns out it wasn't nearly what you thought went on. There's lots of extra layers. Yeah, we do. We sort of do that a little bit with Rosie, but there's no proper recontextualization. Yeah, and that's there. that's the extra little source that I think's missing. It's giving that. It's giving that like view from the gallery, like alternate perspective on something. But that perspective is naturally transformative of the yeah, event but itself. Again, it, the opportunity never came up, and you don't want to force it because if you do, it's very, very trite. Yeah, I, I had always secretly hoped that we would get the chance, but at no point in the entire series do I really feel like it presented itself as an option. So you just kind of got to surf the wave that you're on, rather than wish you had something else. But again, given the choice between an ending that lands and getting that, I, I know what I'd pick. So it's all good. Pushing back on that, one sixty. But is that not what 160 is? See, here's the thing, here's the thing. For 160 and basically anything that ties to the Hilltop Road stuff, I think it touches on it but doesn't truly recontextualise it. It isn't an inversion in the formal sense. It is an elaboration. Okay, fair. Because like, well, 160 takes a lot of stuff that seems like it is accidental or seems like it is the action of one party and reveals it to actually have been Jonah Magnus, actually have been Elias. It's not quite, because what I'm interested in is like that retelling trope where you are literally re-experiencing the event from a different perspective and it is a different event by virtue of that re-lensing. doesn't quite come off. I think 160 is as close as you get in the series. I don't don't think it's necessarily worse off for it. That's a personal want. It's just something you would have liked to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, good name. Uh, Almost Hopeful Cheesecake asks, <laughs> uh, if you yourself worked in the archives, do you think you would have made it to season five? Uh, yeah, probably. I'd end up full-blown Avatar. I'm pretty good at keeping my head down in a job I hate. Nah, nah, I'm not. I'd I'd burn very bright and very fast, and I would go out and immediately become the thing that we were fighting against. It is really easy to push my buttons in specific ways yeah nah i'd love to say i would and this isn't even like a oh in a survival situation in this specific situation someone would immediately turn up and start whispering in my ear all the right things to just go i have become evil and i yeah not a chance i mean i spent nine years 
in the exact same position at a rubbish office job, keeping my head down because I was busy doing like writing and other stuff. Uh, and I think I could probably do the same. <laughs> the on the other hand, yeah, the proof's in the pudding. Whereas I, on the other hand, went very wrong very quickly, and it didn't do well for me. <laughs> so yeah, I think we've already kind of tried this, and uh, I I support you in saying you. Oh yeah, because we actually we started from exactly yep. like, we both started working the same yep. night shift at the same place, and we did it in very different ways. Yeah, I made a lot of noise when I was there as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's yep. fine. I support you in saying you'd survive to season five, though. I actually genuinely do think you would, because you 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 just managed to not be around when stuff hit the fan every time. And that's the thing. The key to getting through a job you hate is learning when to pull a sickie. <laughs> Bang on! Absolutely yes. And you know what? I think I'm skilled enough at pulling tactical sickies <laughs> to make it through to season five. I agree. I 100% agree that that is, yeah, I bang on. Okay, okay, I'm going to move on to the next one because I think you got a definitive answer there. From a bunch of people, who's the character that you had the most fun writing? Ooh. I don't know. There are a lot of them. Like, I love any characters that get to snipe at each other because, you know, like characters just being a bit mean to each other, it's nice. It's fun. It's more fun to write than characters being nice. I think for me, legitimately, Martin, because he has enough arcs to sort of keep me interested, where there's a few versions of that character as the series progresses, so he always felt fresh to me. But if it was characters that are a giggle to write, which isn't quite the same thing, you're looking at stuff like your Helens, your uh, Nikola Orsinovs and things like that. I mean, I think Nikola was great because I know Jess so well and I know exactly how Jess delivers lines. You really caught the voice Uh, bang on for that as well. So it was was very much just like, and then Jess will say this and that And I remember reading those for the first time Uh, going, this is very specific and odd and it's going to be quite hard to direct. Oh yeah, no, you were like, these lines aren't going to work. And I was like... Just, just wait. Just, just, just get Jess in the studio. One of the few times you made me take a leap of faith. You were absolutely right, absolutely right. But coming at that cold, I was like, "This is really unnecessarily difficult to direct. Why are you doing it this way?" I get it now, though, of course. And like, I think, I think Melanie and Archivist sniping at each other has always been a bit mm. of a joy, just because like writing two such similar characters just butting heads, like very satisfying. Okay, in that case, then we're on our last two questions for this one. I think. Okay. Okay, uh, first one. (laughs) How does it feel to have a dedicated wiki, a big one as well, dedicated to something that you've made? Really useful. That has been an absolute lifesaver. Yeah, because you know what I'm really bad at? And like, I tried to make, like, season one, season two, I tried to make my own timelines. I tried to keep all the details straight. I made my own spreadsheets. I'm bad at it. And you know who's great at it? The people making the wiki. So, (laughs) yeah, absolute lifesaver. I I tell you now, the editors and myself use that a lot. Like, a lot. Because you, you sat there going, oh, cool, we're making a reference to something four years ago. We'll check our records, but our records are more about making the thing. They're not conceptual, like, 
a, a record of, of esoteric references and stuff. So as a result, I think there's been one or two times where it's genuinely saved like yeah. production, where we have not had the answer and then done a wiki dive, which pointed us in the right direction to then get the proper answer. And that was a big deal. A lot of it for me was like names and dates and like just making sure that timeline was at least roughly sensical. Weirdly, I don't have much of an emotional response to it like it it feels like part of the wider thing of like oh this this thing that i've made has become very real in a way that i didn't necessarily expect it to Mm. and like the wiki feels like a part of that rather than a separate thing i have a separate emotional reaction to yeah yeah that's fair in that case then I am going to... I'm kind of picking from a selection here. Sure. What's, a, what's a good last one? I like this one from Creeper, because even if there weren't, I know that there were a few nascent ideas. Were there any ideas for fear names slash entities that were scrapped? So it's basically, you know, that final pantheon that exists. What were the ones that didn't make the cut? What were the ones that had options and then never really came together properly? I need to find... I, I found ages back, trawling through some files... I found, like, a version one, like, really? diagram I'd done. Oh, let's see if I can find it. Because this predates me on the project. You already had no, the fears No, actually, not quite. I think it was, like, I think I had the fears down by, like, episode five, I want to say. You already had a bunch of them, though. Yeah. We, I remember discussing, like, final touches, but you had very much been like, I have most of these already kind of laid out. I know that there was a lot of debate as to whether to split out war. Yeah, like a lot of it was to do own. with how to split things, like the, the the corruption being both insects and disease was something that was like I think that bit bugged you more than me, pun intended. Yeah. But, I mean it didn't bug me, but it was a it was a, a more of a decision. I was certainly in the early days pushing for a technologically focused one. And I think Mm. that the extinction scratched that itch for me towards the end. But yeah, I was very much of of an opinion of technology being one of them, although a lot of it got addressed by like, you know, the other ring via the stranger or, you know, the the loss of self and blah, blah, blah. So it kind of got addressed elsewhere. It was one of those things that like, there were a lot of ideas that ended up being like, oh no, that is a thing people are scared of rather than that is a fear. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah, because a fear a fear is like a well, I mean, let's not dive too far into the colour thing again, but you're looking at your, you know, your primary colours, you're at like a core a core memory, you're at a, a component piece. Like it's an element in the formal scientific sense where you can't really reduce it any further because it stops being the thing. And I think that was the thing I struggled with initially is a lot of the things I was suggesting were perfectly valid as a That is something people are scared of. Fearful theme. Yeah. But that's not the same as an element. And I think I was a little slow to get with the program in what you were getting at there, if I'm honest. Get with the program, Alex. Well, the problem is I kept going on about programming as a fear, but it just wasn't landing, Johnny. There was one as well that I toyed around with, which got subsumed beneath the different elements in a similar way, which was like the fear of humanity itself. It's not just, oh, lots of people, oh, well, that's the buried because you're feeling crushed beneath them. It's not the vast, oh, there's a lot of people, therefore, you know, you should be scared of it. But something a bit more, a bit, a bit more fundamental, which is that ultimately, like, humans as a species, 
species, we're, we're born to be suspicious because that's what keeps you alive. And I don't even mean suspicious of strangers. I just mean like people in general are dangerous and there was something there, but I never managed to manifest it properly. And any time I tried to get an angle on it to propose it, it was always covered by the other ah, stuff. Here we are. Here we are. Oh, have you found yes. it? Yes. Okay, go for it. This, this is this is real early. So here, uh, like this, this this is before it was the blank. So I've got terminus, butchery, beholding. That was that was one right from the start. Fang was I think uh, the first. The, oh, interesting. The okay. Viscera. Sure. Hive, filth. Yep. And hive and filth eventually got mixed together into the corruption. Burnt. Pitch, mm. Forsake, mm-hmm. Mentis. Which one's Forsake? Uh, forsake became the Lonely. Oh, of course. Of course. Uh, web, Breathless, Vertigo, and Close. And Breathless and Close became the Buried. Though I don't actually know how I... I don't know what I was conceiving of Breathless as, if not... Mm, I wonder. Yeah, I, I just have to speculate. I don't think we've we've ever really dived into that yeah, one. Yeah, like, it, it's, it's a long time since I've really... It's a long time since I've thought about the, the early forms. But you were right in your selection, I'll give you that. Like, no, every I think... time I tried to put anything else in, like that humanity one or technology, they, they never were actually fundamental. They were symptomatic, and that's not the same thing. Yeah, and I, and I think, yeah, like it, it took us most of the first season, I think, to fully hash out the exact list. I think there were some back and forth on a few of them right up until like late season one. I know that you and I for a while weren't seeing eye to eye on where slaughter fit versus flesh versus hunt that there was a lot of of give and take and pull and stretch on there because i yeah again i think that was more me than you i was pushing against that because well, i didn't quite i think you you gel. rightly identified that even if there wasn't overlap at the core level it would feel like there was overlap at a, an audience level you know? Yeah, fun- fundamentally, the, di- the disappointing thing there is there's a very interesting look into deep, deep, very super early conception, and it's kind of distressingly similar to exactly what came out the other end, if I'm honest. There's not really a, a whole universe out there of-, of fears that never quite made the cut, unfortunately. I mean, what I'm what I'm hearing is we started out pretty much perfect and just got oh, better. Yeah. Is that is that the takeaway you are? Okay, you know what? Let's leave on that note because God forbid I say anything else. Obviously, we'll be doing another one. I think the next one we might have to uh, rattle through a few of these in a little more speed to get through them all. But apart from that, I should thank you for your time, Johnny. I know you kind of assumed that you would be off living your life, but no, you stay in that room. You stay there and you record content forever. That's that's the deal. Magnus is over and still I record. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone. Yeah, until then. Bye, everyone. (laughs) This episode is distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. For more information, visit RustyQuill.com. Tweet us at TheRustyQuill, visit us on Facebook, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. 
who discovers a mysterious and violent online game. What begins as an exploration of an alternate reality game with real-life consequences quickly becomes a search for the technology that makes the game possible. Each episode has a unique soundtrack composed by creator and writer Dylan Griggs. Listen to Woe Begone, spelled woe period begone, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or check out woebegonepod.com for episodes and transcripts. Have fun, and see you later.